and we're going to just stick with Tim Hawkins. So check out Mr. Hawkins here. Oh, this is perfect if you have kids. The thing about how music is weird, music is weird from the time we're born. Parents sing these wild lullabies to their kids. You ever listen to the words to some of these songs? No wonder we're out of our mind. <laughs> Heard a rockabye baby? Listen to the words to that. Rockabye baby on the treetops. <laughs> Does that not weird anybody out here? Are you guys, the baby's in a tree! <laughs> it doesn't bother you? When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the ball breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. <clears throat> need to call Child Protective Services on these parents, <laughs> leaving their baby in a stinky tree. Can't afford a babysitter, don't put them in a tree. Remember Hush Little Baby? You ever listen to that? Hush Little Baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. Are you serious? <laughs> if I shut up, I get a bird? Is that what you're saying to me? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Lift that mockingbird, don't sing. I was gonna buy you a diamond ring. <laughs> Let me get this one straight here. If I kill the bird, I get bling bling. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Just want to get this straight. Can do that right now. <laughs> if that diamond ring turns brass, mom's gonna buy you a looking glass. If that looking glass gets broke, mom's gonna buy you a Billy Goat. <laughs> so we're in Kentucky now. Is that what the problem is? <laughs> see, where's the dad chiming in? Hush, little baby, don't you see? Mom's gonna need a little therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Little baby, man, we used to have the dumbest songs. What did they mean growing up? Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. Jimmy Crack Corn, I don't care. Jimmy Crack Corn, I don't care. If you don't care, why'd you write the stupid song? <laughs> Pretty sure Jimmy Corn's not too, you know, glad about his cracking corn job. You're not helping anything. Now, if Jimmy Corn was on crack, you'd probably care then. <laughs> you'd probably care a lot about Jimmy Corn. But old McDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. Old McDonald was dyslexic, go oh, I E I E. Hey. <laughs> McDonald only had one of everything. You ever notice that? He had a cow, he had a horse, he had a moose. <laughs> Sounds like an underachiever to me. I don't know. I think old McDonald was on crack. I really do. But I don't care. The worst one was Pop Goes the Weasel. <laughs> Who wrote that? Pop Goes the Weasel. <laughs> pop it goes, eh? Pop it. <laughs> you know, it was some guy in England about 200 years ago in some pub. Oh, right, it's this one, right. <laughs> okay, get a pen. This is unbelievable, right? <laughs> All right. Right, write this down. All around 
eine Gruppe des Bench. The monkey chased the weasel. The monkey thought it was all in fun. Pop goes the weasel. And trust me, right, it'll be a hit in America. They'll love it. They'll put in a box of the cranky and a clown pops out, scares children. They'll buy a million of them. Here's another write this one down. Jimmy Crack Corn. <laughs> <laughs> I'll figure it out. I don't know. All right. <clears throat> Here we go, Jude. Let's just read through it and then we'll come back and fix it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to, the, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example for undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, <clears throat> defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was, disputed, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and pe perished in Korah's rebellion. Don't you wish you were an expert in the Old Testament about this time? <laughs> you knew what he was talking about? These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Wow, interesting letter. It's the last letter we're going to do in this little series. Next week, we start that three-week series on prayer. Um, So who wrote Jude? Was it, was it Paul McCartney or John Lennon? I can't. Anybody know? All right. So Jude wrote it. He could have been known as Jude, Judah, Jude, or even Judas. It's a very common name. It's not that Judas, but that's a very common name. Okay? So all three of those would work, but we know him as Jude. Uh, he is the half-brother of Jesus. And the date was almost certainly the late 60s when he wrote it. In other words, all of Paul's letters have been written at this point. James's letter has been written. And Peter's letters have all been written. John's letter, still all of his letters uh, are yet to be written. And um, Hebrews, probably a little bit earlier than Jude. And it's interesting because he identifies himself as James's brother. That's unusual in the first century to identify yourself not as somebody's son, but as somebody's brother. Now, why would, he, why would he do that? And it's James he identifies with as his brother. Okay, So the speculation is that he identified himself as James's brother because James was the head of the church in Jerusalem for years. He, he was a person of weight. And so it might have... Uh, helped establish his credibility by saying, I'm James's half-brother. James was dead by now, long dead, probably a couple of, uh, couple of decades now. And nevertheless, everybody remembered James. Um, so it might be due to wanting some credibility by identifying as James' brother. That would have been better than identifying um, as Joseph's son. But, but if he wants credibility, why not, Jesus, why not identify as Jesus' brother? Right? Okay. Well, that's where there's this balance between needing credibility and perhaps looking for uh, or doing it out of humility. You know, I mean, could you, you may, he's walking around kind of going, nanny, nanny, foo, foo, Jesus was my brother. Okay, that might actually ruin his credibility if he had sort of that kind of an attitude. So there's humility mixed with this need to be able to say, listen, you should read this and listen to this because it's important. 
And he needs to identify at least somewhat strongly because listen to the letter. It's a strong letter. He needs to have some credibility to say what he's going to be able to say. There is an incredible likeness between this letter of Jude and the second chapter of 2 Peter. They are very similar. If you read them right next to each other, they're not the same and they're not copied from each other, but they are very similar. They're talking about the same thing. And the reason it's important to note that is because this was not an isolated incident in Jude, and it wasn't an isolated incident in 2 Peter. It's not an isolated incident when John speaks about false teachers and problems, uh, problem people working their way into churches. It, it's not an isolated incident when Paul tells the leaders in Ephesus when he's leaving, you need to be careful because the wolves are coming and they're going to work their way into the church. These are not isolated incidents. This is sinful human nature, that wherever there is a perception of a vacuum of power, people will work to get themselves sucked into it, and Jude has to uh, work against this here. So they're exposing false teachers and teaching about their judgment and condemnation. They're very real, judgment and condemnation, and it's somewhat harsh-sounding. You heard me read this. It's a little bit harsh-sounding, right? And so is 2 Peter. 2 Peter sounds a little tough too. But there's this beautifully redemptive paragraph in in verses 17 through 23. And then probably the most exalting uh, close of any New Testament letter. I would put up verses 24 and 25 of Jude against the close of any New Testament letter in terms of exalting who Jesus is. The language is absolutely soaring. It's, It's like he just cut loose. And who's he writing to? Well, we're not exactly sure where it's being written to geographically, but we we certainly can say with a great deal of confidence that he's writing to ethnically Jewish Christians because of all of these Jewish references, not only from the Old Testament, but also from books that are in what's considered the Apocrypha, other ancient Old Testament or ancient Jewish writings that were not necessarily considered inspired scripture, but they were considered important to be able to learn from. So, for instance, uh, in this book we have references out of a book called The Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Those are not in the Bible, but they were important, influential, ancient Jewish writings. And Jude references them because he makes a point with them. But also, probably some Gentile Christians uh, also that are in in the mix of who he's writing to, but they are Gentile Christians who are familiar with uh, Jewish tradition and the, the ancient Jewish scriptures. Now, because he cites some of these non strictly non biblical sources, many people have questioned the validity of Jude as something that should be in the Bible, or even as um, something that was originally written by Jude. Would Jude, Jesus' brother, really have used non-biblical material? You know, you're projecting our own vision back on Jude at that point. But some people have legitimately questioned um, the validity of this this book. But it's hard to question the validity of, of a book if you understand the history. The church fathers Clement... Tertullian and Origen, those are some heavyweight church fathers. 
they all in their writings cited Jude as an authoritative text. All of them did. So very early on, we're talking about the second century, within 50 or 60 years after Jude was written, you already had church fathers quoting Jude authoritatively. That's important to understand. And we also need to remember that just because he cites non-Old Testament writings does not mean that he believes they were inspired scripture. Okay, so Paul, in Acts chapter 17, quoted a prophet of the day. Are we going to throw out everything Paul did when he was preaching at, at Athens? He quoted a prophet of the day. He's not saying that that's inspired scripture. He, he's just trying to make a connection with his audience. It's like, it's like when I, do you think I think that the Godfather or the office is inspired? And yet I bring it up, well, maybe the Godfather, but, but I bring it up anyway, right? Okay, you, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a connection. You're trying to show, essentially, that human nature does not change, that you don't need... Uh, just biblical writings to be able to demonstrate that people understand that human nature is really messed up. And that we're, we're like this all over the place. I was thinking about this today. How is it that anybody can read the book of Proverbs and seriously, rationally say the Bible has nothing to say to us today? That is just common sense wisdom in that book. But people say it all the time. And, and then Oprah will say essentially the same thing that you can find in Proverbs and everybody's falling down on their knees and say, oh, Oprah's so wise, you know. And there are four themes in this book. Number one, Christians must defend the doctrines of the faith. We are all about that at Redemption Church. When we go for our monthly pastor meetings, you should hear Tyler talk about the passion he has for defending the, the doctrines of the faith. It's important. Uh, second of all, as uncomfortable as it may be, truth must be honored over tolerance. Tolerance is not truth, and it's not a truth. It's nice in the right context, but it's not truth, and it's not a truth. Does it sound like Jude could be possibly writing to the 21st century? Sure. Number three, false teachers must be identified and warned against. And number four, the saints must persevere. The holy ones in the church must persevere. And by holy ones, I don't mean the ones that are especially pious and perfect acting. I'm talking about people who believe in Jesus. Those are saints, people who believe in Jesus. Okay? So let's go back. I know it's laborious, but let's read it, read it again section by section. So one through four. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May, per, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then verses 3 and 4 are, um, although many people may not even remember that they're from Jude, they're, they're two of the most iconic verses in the New Testament. Lots of people know about these verses. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, some salvations say our common faith there, so pretty much the same thing. I found it necessary to write to you, <clears throat> appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in to the church unnoticed. You haven't noticed them, but they're there. Who long ago 
were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So you see two problems there. Okay. So he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant there is the Greek word doulos, which we talked about a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. It means bondservant or slave. He's indebted to Jesus, and he's owned by Jesus. His salvation owns him. And he says, mercy, peace, and love. That's uh, That's a unique benediction greeting in all of the New Testament letters. Mercy, peace, and love. And many scholars say it's probably Trinitarian. May the mercy of the Father, the peace of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit be with you. So it's like a Trinitarian formula. And then, like I said, we know... Many of us know verses 3 and 4. I was excited to write to you and share God's stories with you. I was excited to write about our common salvation and talk about what God is doing in our lives. That's what I wanted to do. But something way more pressing came up. I told you every, every month we have God stories at our pastor's meetings. Tyler leads that for about an hour. That's the, we spend an hour doing that. We spend time praying. We spend time sharing God's stories. And then Tyler yells at us about all the things that we're doing wrong. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He doesn't do that. And then we talk about what's coming up and key cast vision and stuff. Tyler would never start a monthly pastor's meeting with God's stories if there was a redemption congregation that was preaching license for sin and that there are many ways to God. If I got up on Sunday morning and in all seriousness said, look, we're saved anyway, it's party time. Let's do whatever we want. And oh, by the way, Jesus is not the way to God. Jesus is a way, and there are several ways. It's like if you're in Phoenix and you're trying to get it to Atlanta, you can find several different ways to get to Atlanta. That's the way you can get to God. There are several different ways. I started teaching that. We're not starting the next pastor's monthly pastor's meeting with God stories. Okay, so those two problems are are what they're encountering with these false teachers. And by the way, those two problems are just as common today. We run into this all the time in the church. You got to remember tonight, very important to remember that we're not talking about people outside of the church tonight. We're talking about people inside the church because it's so easy for us to go, yeah, there are people outside of the church teaching this stuff. Of course they teach that. Okay, we're talking about people inside the church. It's very important to make sure that we get that. Okay, so they preach that God's grace is not a call to joy, gratitude, and obedience, but it's rather a call for unrestrained sin. And they preach that Jesus is not unique. There's really nothing special about Jesus. I had this conversation just last week with somebody saying, I... I wasn't saying this. They were saying, I don't understand people who say that Jesus is just a good teacher, but he's not God. I don't understand that. Jesus taught that he was God. If he's a good teacher and you don't believe that he's God, then he's a liar. Why would you ever believe that a good teacher is a liar? It makes no logical sense. And I said, and it reminds me of what um, C.S. Lewis wrote very often. He said, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic Or he's the Lord. But he can't be a good teacher. He's one of those three things, but he can't be a good teacher. A good teacher is 
is like, uh, it's sort of like, um, it's a way of dismissing having to think about who Jesus really is so that you don't have to go through the discomfort of that. Because that can be very uncomfortable. I told you that I, I finished up um, Rain Wilson's biography. Okay, so Dwight Schrute. All right. Uh, very interesting biography. I, the reason I read it is because it's Dwight, but I, I just was interested in his life. Um, but I was fascinated by all the talk in his biography about faith. It, it was one of the primary themes running through his biography. He was raised as a Baha'i. I don't know if anybody knows what a Baha'i is. Uh, essentially, a Baha'i uh, believes that there is a God and he's a creator, but that, that he's a good God and there's no judgment, no condemnation, all dogs go to heaven, and there are many ways to God. So whatever your path to God is, that's acceptable. Okay. He was raised as a Baha'i by a couple of Seattle hippies. These are his descriptions, okay? Um, and then <clears throat> when he got into the New York uh, School of Acting um, and moved to New York and started working there and, and started doing drugs and all that stuff, he became an atheist, and he was an atheist for about seven years. He claims that he had an encounter with God, which you can read about if you're interested in what his encounter with God is. But it, deny, it, 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 it involves being saved from an overdose <laughs> and being able to live. And, he said, and after that experience, he said, God is real. I was wrong as an atheist. God is real. And he began to return to his Baha'i roots. So he believes in a creator and a God. He doesn't believe that Jesus is divine. But this is the point I'm getting at. It's really interesting. And it's kind of this idea that Jesus is a good teacher so that you don't have to deal with who Jesus really is. He said, I don't understand anybody who says that they're an agnostic. He says, that is not an option. For the thinking, logical, intellectual person, being an agnostic is not an option. The person who says they're an agnostic is the person who is saying, I don't want to have to do the difficult work of really thinking about God and the big questions of life. That's what an agnostic is doing. They're intellectually weak and they have no courage. That's what he says about agnostics. He said there's only two choices. And he says it's the atheist choice and it's creator God choice. He says here's the atheist choice. The atheist choice, again, his words, not mine. The atheist choice is that a bunch of molecules got together randomly billions of years ago and somehow were able to form themselves into a construction where now we have souls and we're able to uh, think and rationalize and we, we evolved. He says, or there was a creator God that made everything. And then he says, frankly, there isn't much of a choice. There's a creator God. Because <laughs> this idea that molecules randomly assembled so that now we have souls, he says, doesn't fly either. So the reason I bring that up is because here's a guy that doesn't even believe in Christianity, but at least he's thinking about it and coming to the same conclusions that we would too. So is it just a matter of time before Dwight Schrute's going to be in heaven? I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. The point is, when you're thinking about these things, when you really do engage them, you begin to see the evidence of a creator God even for people who don't necessarily buy Jesus, and the irrationality of this idea that 
this all just randomly happened. Okay? So, these false teachers are destined and designated for condemnation. That's the word that's used in this letter. They are destined for condemnation. And as a result, in verse 3, we must contend for the faith. That word contend means to strive strenuously. How many of us as Christians really just want this nice, easy, Christian, comfortable Christian faith where we're just kind of blessed and comfortable and we never have to strive? We, we never have to strain. This is mental, physical, and emotional strain, and it's tiring. <clears throat> it's tiring. One of the challenges of the Christian faith is that people think that living in the faith should be effortless and free of tension. I run into this all the time. I must not be in God's will because my life is hard right now. Well, then Paul was never in God's will. What do we do with that? Jesus kind of had it rough there at the end too, right? Okay. We believe that being a person of faith will not invite attack, temptation, or hard conversations. Peter says we must always be ready to give a defense, but with humility and gentleness. The way Jackie did with me. Remember I talked about that last week? And it's not that we're doing it under our own power, but we are involved, and it will be exhausting. It will be exhausting. So verses um, 5 through 7, three examples of why the false teachers will be judged. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, he was there during the Exodus. That's what Jude is saying. Jesus was there. Of course he was. Afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of under undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there were those who opposed the exodus, even some Jews. There were those who opposed the exodus, Jews who opposed that. And Jesus was there, and he was watching. That's verse 5. Verse 6, disobedient fallen angels. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says the same thing. And this is referencing some somewhat obscure Old Testament text, Genesis 6, Job, Isaiah. It's some amalgamation of those three texts that says that these angels had a position and they vacated that position in rebellion. And now they're in eternal chains. And then verse 7 is the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know the story. There were some problems there. And so he's talking about all the three of these things are talking about license, sin license, and a rejection of the idea of, of one true God. And here's what happens to the false teachers. Jesus will judge and condemn them as he always has. But I thought Jesus just loved people. Yeah, but he can't abide in 
in the unholy, and if, they, if you don't believe in Jesus, that makes you unholy. He can't abide in that. He's God. He can't do it. So one of the things that we learn here again is that there was disobedience and false teaching in the past, and it was punished. There's disobedience now. God's going to do something about that, and there will be disobedience in the future, and God will do something about that as well. Things don't change. The nature of God never changes. The nature of humans never change. We just find new and different technology to express our nature. That's the only difference. The context just change, changes. And Jesus, and by the way, this is no joke, okay? Have you gotten that tonight? I mean, this is no joke. And Jesus is God, and Jesus was there in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, and he was judging and condemning false prophets and false teachers. And, and again, I want to remind you, the false teachers are not cultural icons like Oprah or Deepak or Stephen Hawking, who clearly claim not to believe that Jesus is divine. They're perfectly fine saying, no, I don't believe that Jesus is divine. Okay? We're not talking about them. We're talking about those who come ostensibly as faithful Christians into the church, but then refuse to submit to the doctrinal purity or the authority of the church. That's what Jude is talking about, people inside the church. And they teach lies within the faith about the gospel. They are not merely outsiders offering a truth other than the gospel. They are the latter. They're people inside the church trying to mislead people. And, and we need to be vigilant about that. All right, the big paragraph, verses 8 through 16. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there's, verse 9 is, is a reference to the, that book, The Assumption of Moses. Okay? And then verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinct instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked... In the way of Cain, what did Cain do? Yeah, okay. They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Those are numbers references. Those are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds. I love this language here. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Waterless clouds. Jackie loves it when it rains. Jackie loves the rain. She wants it to rain. Okay? Now, if she lived in Seattle, she'd, she'd want sunshine. You know, I just, I know that's true. But we don't hardly ever get any, any rain. I will tell you, the most annoying thing, I mean, she gets angry when it's overcast, but there's no water coming from the cl waterless clouds. She hates waterless clouds. That should be in her social media profile. I hate waterless clouds. Okay. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for these people forever. Yikes. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. So here we go, verse 15, 14 and 15 is the book of Enoch, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. (laughs) Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. That seems to be a theme right there, okay? And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism in order to gain advantage. So, the point of these nine verses, Jude explains that false teachers continue to fall three, follow three bad precedents that have already been set before. False teachers will always follow these three precedents, and others, but these three are primary ones. Cain showed no respect for his brother who was made in God's image. We are willing, that's, that's, by the way, that's James, the book of James, chapter 3, when James says the tongue is a house of fire, who can understand it? With it we praise our Lord who is in heaven and we curse those who are made in his image and likeness. It ought not to be that way. The problem of robbing God's image bearer of his dignity or of their life. That's a problem. That's the first thing. Second thing, Balaam led God's people astray for the sake of personal gain. Can you imagine people working in the church for personal gain? For their own well-being and not for anybody else's. Does that, hap- does that really happen? And then number three, Korah just rejected God's authority. He just outright rejected God's authority. So here you go. This is just like a bullet point list of false teachers in Jude's day and in our day. Here you go. False teachers. And this is taken right from the text. They reject God's authority and submit only to their own authority. False teachers do that. They teach and preach for personal gain and not for the exaltation of Jesus in the kingdom of God. They are so busy elevating themselves that they never love, serve, respect, or fight for justice for the others, even though many of them claim that they do. They give it lip service, but they don't actually do it. Furthermore, False teachers are often motivated by envy and jealousy. They're, more cons- they're involved in the social comparison process. I, my ministry isn't as big. My church isn't as big. My plane isn't as big. My fleet of planes isn't as large. Verse 12, false teachers hide in our congregations under the guise of wisdom, fresh interpretations of Scripture, and being really pious followers of Jesus. And we are duped by them. We feed them and give them platforms. And then here's the last one. And they never, ever produce what they promise. They are rainless clouds and fruitless trees. Instead of blessing those they teach, they pollute their disciples and slander the true teachers. And God will avenge them. They may be sitting pretty now, but they are headed for doom. And then you get to what I think is the most interesting paragraph in the letter, and that's 17 through 23. Now he calls. Now he exhorts. He says, all this is troubling and a problem. And you need to understand that Jesus will take care of this. But here's what you need to do. 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. That sounds like Paul right there, doesn't it? When he's writing to Timothy. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, so to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." The fact of scoffers and mockers is not new and it's not old. It just is. As long as there's been people, there have been scoffers and mockers. And, and they're involved in any context, in any era, and with any group of people. And the, the Christian faith has always faced this challenge. It always will face this challenge. Um, I, I'm sorry. I got it. I get it just, th this sort of fits into it. I have a, I think some of you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Um, the things I see on Twitter just, literally just, I, I shake my head and it makes me sick. But if it weren't for Twitter, I wouldn't have access to a bunch of really helpful essays and articles and thoughts that I, I wouldn't have access to otherwise. I also wouldn't be able to follow Carrie and find out what good food there is at different ballparks. His wife, Carrie, has one of the best Twitter feeds on Twitter, by the way. You should be following her. Anyway, um, but last week, it was fascinating to me. Last week, for whatever reason, there was this, you know, there's surges and there's momentums in Twitter. And last week, there was this surge of very, very young pastors um, tweeting things like this. The church in America is doomed because... Uh, they're out of touch and irrelevant. And the, if, if the church in America doesn't start to do church the way we think it ought to be done, the church is doomed. The church is going to go away. And then, and then they just all started piling on. Yeah, we, we know how to, do, you know, just all of this stuff. And I, and I remember sitting there, I'm reading this, and I remember in the 90s, there was a bunch of young pastors going to conferences saying, the church is over in another 10 or 15 years if you don't start doing church the way I'm doing it. Every era, there are people saying the church is doing. Is the church going away? There's no way the church is going away. And here's the other thing that kills me: they apparently have no idea what's going on in South America and in Africa in the church, because it's blowing up there. But there again, there again is just this idea that we're all narcissists. And one of the definition uh, definitions of a narcissist is that nothing ever happens in the world unless it happens to you. So they see some cracks and flaws in the American church. They're right. But they think somehow that's going to be the end of it, as if the American church is the only church that can sustain Jesus. Jesus is in heaven right now going, man, I am really worried about the American church because if they fall, then I'm dead. That's what Jesus is doing. He's thinking that, I guarantee you. He's very worried. Okay. Scoffers and mockers, it's not new. We've always faced this challenge. It was portended in, in Acts chapter 20, in Jesus' preaching and teaching, and in several other New Testament letters. We've already talked about it. Jesus predicted it. The apostles predicted it. And it was a, it was a huge problem that the Old Testament prophets pushed back against. Um, after Ephesians, 
Redemption is doing something that we haven't really ever done before. We're going to have 10 weeks where every local congregation is going to do whatever they want to do. So we're not going to have a preaching calendar. So we at Arcadia have decided to do an overview of the minor prophets. And you're going to find out that the same problems that were, that were written about in the New Testament were, were preached against by the minor prophets hundreds of years earlier. The human condition does not change. It just doesn't. And when Jude references the last times, it's simply a reference to the time that we all live in now. It's between Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1 and his return in Revelation 21. Verse 19. Jude is not, again, Jude is not saying that these people are from outside the church and admitting that they don't follow Jesus. These are people who desire to be sucked into the leadership vacuum of any local church and by their design get set up, as one scholar writes, S.M. Ba, they get set up as superior Christians to all others because they somehow possess special knowledge, insight, passion, or ability that ordinary Christians do not. We run into this all the time. Larry Osborne, anybody ever heard of Larry Osborne? He's written a few books. He wrote a terrific book about 20 years ago called The Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. It's under a different title now, but if you Google it, you can find it. It's a great book. He's a pastor in San Diego. Um, Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, his all-time favorite book is A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. So that'll tell you a little bit about Larry's book. L Larry's, Larry, that book has four chapters on this idea that you need to be careful of people who believe that their passion is the passion that the entire church should be passionate about. They don't understand how a Christian body works. They believe that the Christian body, if they're a nose, they believe the Christian body should be a nose. If they're a hand, they believe the Christian body should be a hand. And those are false teachers. Okay? And the sooner you identify them and, and stand them up at the blue line, the better. And I've learned their quotes. Here you go. I've learned their quotes. It, it, and every time one of them says one of these quotes, they think they're saying something original that we have. It's like I've been teaching at Paradise Valley Community College for 18 years. And every student who has an excuse thinks that um, this is the first time I've ever heard this excuse. That they're so clever that they can make up something that knows. And it's like, how many times do I have to hear that one? Okay. It's the same thing here. Okay. Here you go. You know, we really need a fresh interpretation of that passage. Oh, really? 2,000 years of studying this passage by people way smarter than you, and you're going to have a fresh interpretation of this passage that is better. Okay? I need a little help with that. <laughs> Not a lot of secrets in the Christian faith waiting to be unlocked. Here's another one. I see things long before anyone else sees them. Okay, I'm not sure if they got that line from the sixth sense and sort of modified it or what, but it's that idea that I know what's going on before anybody else, so you need to follow me. Here you, here you go. If you really cared about the church and the cause of Christ, this would be the ministry you would be involved in and have passion for. What's your ministry again? The, the ministry that you should be involved in and have passion for. <laughs> okay. Uh, when it comes to church music, I've always been fascinated. I, I've, never had a, I've never sat down with anybody... Uh, who wants to have a discussion about um, 
in any church I've ever been in for 20 years, okay? And I hardly have these discussions here, which is nice, but I used to have them a lot at my last church. People want to sit down and talk about how much the music sucks and how we could grow the church if the music was different, if it was this kind of music. I've never once in my 20-year career had anybody say, now, I need you to understand, the music that I'm proposing that would help grow the church is not music that I personally prefer. It's always music that they personally prefer, that they are sure the whole church will like, okay? It's the same thing with ministries, okay? I'm really passionate about prison ministry, but I'm also really careful to not make anybody feel like they're some substandard Christian because they don't visit somebody in prison or write a letter to somebody in prison. Not everybody's wired that way, okay? I'm thankful that they're not because we have people who are wired to do foster care and adoption. I'm not wired that way. We need people to do foster care and adoption. Refugees, immigration issues, other justice issues. I can't do it all, and you can't expect me to do it all, and I can't expect you to do the ones that I want you to do. You need to figure out how you're gifted and how God is going to use you. But if you really cared about the church and the cause of Christ, your church would identify only with this ministry. I've had that conversation with people too. We need to put it on the sign on the front. Okay, Here's another one. Your church isn't supporting the right causes, issues, or ministries. I can help you with that. <laughs> Thank you. And that's when I give them Josh Prather's name and phone number. So. And then here's the, ne- here's the last one. I just have such a passion for leading people. I'm always really nervous about that one, especially when it's their second Sunday here and they've already decided they want to lead people here. You don't even know anybody (laughs) yet, you know. So here you go. This is, you got to think a little bit when I give you this quote. Margaret Thatcher, anybody remember who she was? Okay, some of you that are my vintage, you remember. Okay. Margaret Thatcher was giving a speech one time in the 80s on leadership. She's giving a speech on leadership, and she said this. If you have to tell people that you are a lady, you probably aren't one. Do you understand what she's saying? Be really careful of people walking around going, I'm a leader. I'm a leader. I need to lead people. I'm a leader. I need to lead people. Be really careful of them. But they're out there. And Jude is talking about people like that here. But then Jude offers counsel in the midst of this and this council is filled with tension, and it's filled with lines that move. I get it, but it's important nevertheless to, per, to pursue. He gives us six pieces of counsel that we should follow, six encouragements, six things that he's calling us to. Number one, he says, wait patiently for Jesus to come again while remaining steadfast in the faith. Our hope is in the second coming. We need to remember that. I can't read this And think about this point that Jude makes here without thinking about James chapter 2 verses, uh, I'm sorry, James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, okay? This is is Jude's half-brother. They must have had a few conversations. They must have sat up late at night talking about their faith and talking about the application of their faith. 
James, in his letter, he writes, verse 1 is just, I'm James, and I'm writing to you. And then he just dives right. He didn't even pray for the, the people he's writing. He just dives right in. He says, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Okay, the first time you're reading that, it's like, consider it all joy. You're going, oh, cool, something good's coming. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Joy in trials of various kinds. That word that's translated trials is also translated as tribulation, suffering, challenge, and here you go, temptation. When you're tempted, isn't it a trial? Isn't it a form of suffering? You know? And he says, trials of various kinds. The, the, the Greek there literally means multicolored trials. Very image-driven language. Multicolored trials. There's trials that are red that'll make you mad. There's trials that are yellow that'll make you scared. There's trials that are green that'll make you jealous and envy. There's trials that are blue that'll make you sad. Right? Isn't that true about life? Okay? Consider it all joy when you encounter trials and challenges and sufferings and temptations of many different colors. And then he tells you why. Because the testing of your faith, there's the gospel component, will produce, here you go, exactly, exactly what Jude is saying. It'll produce something good, perseverance. And that word perseverance is the Greek word hupomene, which literally translated is steadfast. It'll, it'll enable you to stand rooted fast and withstand the storm, withstand the battle. You heard, if you were here this Sunday, you heard Vermon talking about this. You, you need Jesus to be able to stand, to withstand, to be steadfast in your faith. Not to necessarily advance, but, but so that you don't run. You are standing in faith, and our hope is in the second coming. That, that testing of our faith, and that testing of our faith language is actually living your life in a crucible that gets heated up. That's what it's saying. Don't you feel like your life is like in a little crucible and you get heated up all the time? And It produces perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, and patience. Hupomene is translated all four of those words in the New Testament. Perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, and patience. Second thing, keep yourselves rooted in the love of God which also means the truth of God, because there is no genuine love without truth. Verse 21, I believe, is the nexus of this letter. It's the gospel as life built on the foundation of Jesus' truth and love. Number three, be willing to walk patiently with those who genuinely struggle with their faith, who have doubt. I'm not talking about people who are trying to work the system. I'm talking about people who genuinely struggle with their faith. Be patient with them. Is it reasonable to expect a six-year-old is going to act like a 40-year-old? We need to remember there's lots of people who are new in their faith, and, and they have questions, and they're going to doubt, and they're going to be attacked, and we need to have patience with them. And we need to remember that, that um, transformation doesn't always happen overnight. In fact, it most often happens about a half an inch at a time, and we need to be patient for that. One of the greatest challenges that we have in our walk is, that, is when we encounter people who aren't as mature or wise as studied as we think we are. We need to remember we, are, we were once in that infancy season of our faith as well. We need mercy and patience because we receive mercy. I received tons of mercy and patience at North Phoenix. Number four, 
be willing to do the loving but abrupt and confrontational work of, if necessary, violently grabbing the person who is heading off a cliff in their ignorance. I've used this illustration before. It applies to adults too. You have a three-year-old. The three-year-old gets away from you holding their hand and decides that they want to run out into traffic. Okay? As the parent, do you stand there and say, look, they really feel like they want to go into traffic and I just need to let that happen. That's their truth and who am I to step on their truth? Is that what parents do? No, you tackle the sucker. <laughs> You'll do anything to keep them from running out into the traffic. Adults need that sometimes too. They need to be squared up and looked in the eye. You know, the way Jackie sometimes squares me up and looks me in the eye. I, I sort of disconfirm when I know she's on me and I know I'm wrong. I tend to disconfirm with through my posture, kind of turning away from her, and she knows it. So she squares me up. And she looks me in the eye. We need to be willing to do that when it's right. Okay? We need both patience and boldness, in other words. Number five, season your mercy with fear. In other words, take off your rose-colored glasses. Be compassionate, but also be realistic about the, hum the motiv motivations that human beings have and their ability to manipulate. We're manipulative little suckers, aren't we? Well, yeah, my spouse is. But. And then number six, don't even dabble in the dirty residual waters of false teaching, corruption, or sin. Don't, don't, even, dab, don't, don't, don't even get the stain on you. Don't even get the aroma of it on you. Okay? Because sin has a way of floating. Sin has a way of seeping. Have you noticed that? It seeps. We've had a lot of rain recently. How many of us have found out that water has a way of finding the cracks and the lowest possible point, <laughs> right? Okay? Sin is exactly like that. Um, I tend, when I go into a department store, which I know there aren't as many around as there used to be when I was younger, but when I go into a department store, there's one area that I try to avoid, and you have to really avoid it, and that's the perfume counter. Because, because the person who's testing perfume right here, have you noticed that, that that perfume doesn't just stay right there? Okay? I'm, I'm in the men's socks area, and that stuff is floating over and finding me, okay? And I'm not all that excited about that perfume junk, okay? I tend to sneeze and react badly to it. But that's the way sin is. You ever, you ever, um, years ago, I was 16 years old, I was working downtown in a building, old building, and it had this um, uh, dumbwaiter. You know what a dumbwaiter is? We had, a, we had a freight elevator, we had a regular passenger elevator, and then we had a dumbwaiter. Dumbwaiter is where you, it, you're, you're really not supposed to put a person inside a dumbwaiter, although I did that once to scare somebody and it was really funny, but you're not supposed to really do that. But it's a small little elevator where you send things up and down between floors, okay? 
And, and we all began to notice that, that somewhere over there, and the dumbwaiter was over, somewhere over there, there was this aroma that was starting to come. And pretty soon the aroma wasn't really an aroma anymore. It stunk, and it was awful. And, and then it got to the point where you couldn't go anywhere near that area. And we, we were confused. We're looking all around. We couldn't figure it out. We were so confused about what was happening. We finally decided, um, let's call the elevator company and have them come out and look at the elevator. Maybe the gears are grinding or something. <laughs> we didn't know, you know. So the elevator guys come out, and they get into the shaft. And on top of the dumbwaiter, and it apparently had been there for a couple of days, was a street rat about that big, and it was dead. Okay, and, that, and that, that street rat had the nerve when it died of letting its aroma float into all these other areas of our work area. That's what sin is like. It just permeates everything. And, 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 he's, and he's calling us to be careful of that. Tom has described that as... as um, we love to dabble in sin because we think that we can dabble without diving, you know? That there's this flower of sin here, and it's just enticing us in. And so what we do is we kind of come around the flower, and we're like, <laughs> and then, you know, it just jumps out at you, and it sucks you in, okay? Well, I'm just looking at the Sports Illustrated issue online three clicks away from who knows what, <laughs> okay? So he gives us these six lines, and then the question would, I would ask is, well, where are those six lines? Because they keep moving them. They do. You have to constantly negotiate this. There isn't a line, and it's there, and it's set, and you know where it is all the time. They're always moving these lines. You've got to be really careful. You gotta be, here you go. This is the, the application of biblical wisdom into our lives in differing contexts. And that's why there's tension. We will always be negotiating this, all six of these items. And that's one of the crosses we bear in our faith. And then finally, I think the most exalting closing paragraph of any New Testament letter, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He has the ability through the cross and resurrection to present you and I blameless and he does it with great joy. He, with joy, Hebrews tells us, he went to the cross. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time, and now and forever. Amen. <laughs> I love that. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority eternally. That's what he's saying. And yet I think the most beautiful phrase in that is to present us blameless. Something every one of us needs to be presented blameless. We want to be blameless. We're not blameless, but we will be presented blameless because the blameless one died for us. That's a beautiful thing. That is really good news. Well, thanks for hanging out for the uh, four postcards of the New Testament. And uh, let me pray, and I'll see you Sunday morning. We're going to continue in our spiritual warfare track in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about the armor of God on Sunday morning. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the boldness
of Jude. Uh, and, and the fact that, that he was willing to call it like it is. Uh, that he had the courage and the boldness to do that, but he also ultimately points us to the joy and the, and the glory and the authority and the dominion of your son, which is what we need to rest in because he is going to present us blameless. He has presented us blameless. We are blameless right now in him. That is great news. We love you for that. We're so thankful. Uh, let us now apply that to our lives and live it out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.